Welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Inside the BACB. I'm Dr. Jim Carr, the organization's CEO, and I'm joined today by my deputy CEO, Dr. Melissa Nasek. Hi, everybody. So today we're going to address a few criticisms of and some misunderstandings about the BACB's practices. You know, as we've, we mentioned frequently, our profession is in its adolescence, and this means that there are a number of important aspects of our professional infrastructure that just are not complete yet. So it's understandable that misunderstandings exist, um, and we're happy to address them. But before we jump in, Melissa, I think it would be helpful to share a little bit about the BACB's history with our audience. So would you please kick us off? Absolutely. So the history of the BACB is one of my favorite topics, so I am excited to get to talk about it on the podcast. Uh, We are 22 years old. Uh, We were established in 1998 and are the largest and oldest certification body for behavior analyst practitioners. In the last 10 years, the value of certification has really become important. But we were around 12 years before that doing the early shaping of the practice requirements that currently exist. Mm -hmm. Um, While the BACB's mission is to set appropriate entry-level standards for behavior analytic practice to protect consumers, the mission is not to increase the number of certified practitioners. Sometimes because uh, Jim and I and other people that present on behalf of the BACB share data on the growth in the number of certificates, it's misinterpreted sometimes as us having the goal to increase the number of certificates. And really the reason that we share those data so frequently is because they are the best metric that behavior analysis has on its growth right now. That's right, Melissa. And you know, just as our profession has grown considerably in the last decade, so has the BACB. Just nine years ago, we had six employees at the organization, and now there are 80, and we will likely be over 85 by the end of the year. And we knew the organization was going to grow, but we had no idea it was going to get this big so quickly. You know, that's actually one of the reasons we moved to Denver. Uh, We actually saw something on social media about this recently, and people were hypothesizing about why the BAC moved to Denver, and it was all wrong. So here's, here's the right answer. So the company was founded in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, which is a a small, charming city, Um, but it's not a great city for growing an organization. Uh, When we were there, it was hard to hire staff, uh, and it had a very, very tiny airport. And we do a lot of travel, both our staff and SMEs, and I knew that was going to increase. So we actually considered a handful of cities as our new corporate home, but eventually settled on Denver because it's got a great quality of life. It's got a huge hub airport which has been very helpful for the hundreds of uh, trips that staff and SMEs take in and out of it each year. And we have a large population, over 3 million people, um, and that's just a a great population for hiring. Um, And because most of our staff have been hired locally, um, we've actually benefited quite a bit from this large talent pool. And so our decision to move to Denver, you know, it has been validated. All right, so at this point, over 10% of our staff are BACB certificates, and these are mostly BCBADs, but we also have some BCBAs and, and RBTs on staff as well. And this is important because we actually use behavioral approaches in our organization, uh, and we have found that it's sometimes easier to teach a behavioral analyst about a new content area than to teach a content specialist to do their work behavior analytically. Yeah, that's true. 
So I get, let's go ahead and get back to the topic at hand. So, you know, as the BACB has grown and, and we've had to figure out ways of scaling up and responding to lots of ever-changing external needs and pressures, I think the same has been said of our university training programs and our service organizations. And in one area where we've identified as, as needing a lot of work is just our collective understanding and the profession of the state of our infrastructure. Uh, and our professional infrastructure includes the BACB, you know, both what it is and what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, so it makes perfect sense that there's just an ongoing need to address criticism uh, and misunderstandings about the organization. And, and, you know, we're happy to take the opportunity to do that today. So, Melissa, why don't you kick us off by addressing the criticism that the BACB certification requirements are just too low? Sure, Jim. So when the BACB was founded, there were only about 50 university training programs in behavior analysis around the world. Many of them only had a single professor doing training, and there were no standardized curricula across those programs. ABAI had started an accreditation program a few years earlier, but it was still in its infancy. So the initial requirements had to be based on what was feasible at that time, when there were just a few programs. Today, there are over 500 university training programs around the world, and the curricula for those programs are more standardized. So let's just talk briefly about how these requirements have progressed. For example, the BACB's coursework requirements for BCBAs in 1999 was 180 hours of training and went to 225 in 2006 and then 270 in 2015 and in 2022, we will be at 315 hours of coursework. This shaping process definitely parallels the growth of the greater availability of the university training that we just shared with you um, that developed over the same period of time. So another way to think about that is 180 hours is four three-credit semester-long courses. Uh, so we've gone from four courses as the requirement for BCBA credential in 99 to seven courses in behavior analysis in 2022. So that's almost a doubling in a little over two decades. And I'm, I'm sure that story is going to continue into the future. And, you know, just to give an example, so I was certified as a BCBA in 2001. And I was using my training from uh, Florida State University. So I got my PhD with Dr. John Bailey there. And this is an established training program in behavior analysis, but it wasn't a behavior analysis educational program. So we work with John and, you know, we took a couple of courses, but I really struggled to extract from a very meaningful and deep doctoral training experience in behavior analysis. I struggled to extract 180 hours that would meet the requirements. So just giving you an example that even some of our top programs at the time 180 hours was a bit of a challenge to meet. That's right. And let's look at our fieldwork and supervision requirements. You see a similar progression with the BCBA requirements from 1999, where 12 months with biweekly supervisor contacts or 18 months with monthly supervisor contacts qualified. And get this, the supervisor just had to attest to being a behavior analyst mm -hmm. because there were no certificates at the time to require supervisors to be BCBAs. Mm -hmm. Then fast forward to 2022, the requirement will be 2,000 hours with a supervisor that has training and supervision, has to get ongoing CEUs and supervision, and has to have one year of experience as a BCBA. 
Yeah, it's a huge change. I actually qualified under the 18 month option. Uh, and that's just what we could do at the time. Yeah. And so look, you know, comparing what that was with 2000 hours with all the rest of it, that's a big change. You know, another uh, interesting aspect of those initial requirements is a month was not defined. So you could have had five hours a week yeah. uh, or five hours in a whole month and you could have counted that month. So it was very, very loose, but it kind of had to be, you know, just for where we were and, and what we were able to make. And it was kind of like uh, it's a shaping process, right? Um, it's not exactly shaping, but it's akin to shaping in the sense that you kind of have to start mm -hmm. with what's possible and then gradually elevate the goal over time. But you can't go too quickly uh, or you lose it. Right. So, you know, if you were to take the 2022 standards, seven courses in behavior analysis at the graduate level, 2000 hours with a supervisor that has all these requirements mm -hmm. and put them back in 1999, no one would have been able to meet them the certification that's, programs would have failed. That's a really, really good point. You know, another, so there are two other things that come to mind about this. So typically when people ask us about the supervision piece of the fieldwork requirements, mm -hmm. they don't remember that our subject matter experts meet and make recommendations about all of our requirements. So we use the processes for recruiting experts that provide supervision as part of their primary activities. And those are the people that are informing these standards, as you mentioned, have progressed over time. Uh, and then the other thing that I just wanted to mention here is that the supervision requirements are relatively new, as you as you indicated. Um, so within the last four five years is really when the more rigorous supervision requirements started. And to be able to say that in 2022, brand new BCBAs won't be able to supervise for their first year unless they have supervision themselves is a step in the right direction. It's a big change. Yeah, for sure. You know, so if you, we return to the initial issue, uh, and that's a criticism that our requirements are too low, well, of course, that's subjective, you know, uh, too low compared to whom. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, thinking about where we started, thinking about uh, where we very soon will be and acknowledging this sort of shaping process, uh, we don't know what the future requirements are going to be yeah. because, as you indicated, they're established by subject matter experts, voted in by the board of directors. And by the way, we can plug an earlier podcast episode on subject matter experts specifically. Um, it's Absolutely. highly likely that our requirements will continue to become more rigorous in the future uh, until we hit uh, some uh, magical steady state. Yeah. And, you know, with that, not only are subject matter experts informing these standards, but they are now having in ethics and in supervision a literature base that has almost exponentially grown over the last few years as a result of all the growth in the profession. And those resources will certainly shape the supervision requirements in the years ahead. No doubt. Okay, I have a question for you, Jim. Okay. We talk very hopefully about a future steady state and a mature infrastructure in behavior analysis. And we've just spent some time talking about the the um, standards and capacity building occurring at the BACB over the last decade. What are the milestones that you think might be indicators of reaching such a state in behavior analysis as a profession? 
Okay, that's a, a good question and uh, and a hard one. So let's think about just some of the common aspects of a profession's infrastructure. So you've got your, your, your university training programs, which I still maintain are the most important independent variables uh, in terms of the quality of our professionals. Uh, you've got the professional organizations, the national, the regional, the state uh, organizations. You've got the uh, publications, the journals, and, and other media, and the credentialing programs, which include you know certification and licensure. So all of these entities have to be um, fully capable of fulfilling their missions and fulfilling their respective needs at the time. Uh, and I think that if you look at our university programs and our professional associations and our journals and and our certification programs and licensure, I mean, even the BACB, we are not fully formed yet. We're on the way. And I, I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I think all of these entities need a lot of work because when uh, our profession, I think, will be able to be labeled as mature when all of these entities together uh, adequately meet the demand of the body of professionals that they serve. And then that body of professionals has to be large enough to meet the required demands in terms of, um, you know, providing uh, certain kinds of services, right. contributing to literature, that sort of thing. Um, and so we're not there yet, clearly. Uh, and hopefully there are no organizations out there that feel like, oh, nope, what we're doing now is what we should be doing in 10 years, because I, I don't think hardly anything is is where it, it needs to be just because of where we are in our development. Um, but I will say, I think all the organizations need to be doing some strategic planning for the future. Uh, yeah. And this might include looking to other professions as, as models. You know, our infrastructure is not going to be identical to others, but uh, a lot of things have been figured out. Um, and if you look at some of the resources uh, that other professions have access to, uh, you'll you'll see a big disconnect or a big discrepancy between what we have available, which is quite limited and understandably yep. so, uh, and and what professionals uh, in in other arenas uh, have access to. Um, yeah, so, that, those are really important points. I love the answer. It makes me realize that you know, the efforts that we make to look at the certification industry and the progression of some of the, the larger comparable professions to ours and what their certification board is doing and offering and always taking into context how we're different and what should fit into our strategic plan. I think it it's a great model. Yeah, no, I agree. We, uh, for our listeners, we spend a lot of time looking at big mature certification programs, not not as a roadmap, but just to get an idea of a, a possible future, possible resources and that sort of thing. All right, so moving on, uh, I'll take the next one. So this is a misunderstanding. So some people are under the impression that the BACB certifications are autism specific. Uh, and this includes the certification requirements and also the examinations. Uh, when in reality, the BACB is the only organization that offers general certifications in behavior analysis, whereas some others are actually autism specific. Now, it's true that the majority of BACB certificates do report working in autism as their primary practice area. 
and this is you know not surprising this is a function of the uh, the jobs that are out there right now and, and the substantial consumer demand for those services but from the very beginning the BACB recognized the breadth of applied behavior analysis and we've worked diligently to keep its requirements population neutral and I think we've been you know mostly uh, successful um, so when we develop or revise our certification requirements, we take great care to ensure that they can be met in a variety of different areas. Uh, in our examinations, we actually categorize each item based on subspecialty areas to ensure that there's a diverse uh, range presented to testers uh, in any examination form. Um, but we also ensure that even when uh, an item is contextualized in a certain area, there's no subspecialty area specific knowledge needed to answer that question beyond the core behavioral concept that's being tested. So again, although the vast majority of our certificates work in the autism area, our certification programs are actually population neutral uh, and they're population neutral on purpose. Mm -hmm. All right, so Melissa, why don't you take the next one? All right, so another important topic to discuss is our ability to provide ethics-related guidance to BACB certificants. This is generally misunderstood. Typically, the organization that publishes a code of ethics is different than the organization that enforces the code. The American Psychological Association is a great example because they publish the code, but ultimately it is the licensure boards that enforce the code. That separation provides APA with more latitude in their interpretation and guidance around ethics-related items. Now at the BACB, we both publish and we enforce the code, which means we need to be careful in this area. The BACB has published elaborations in our newsletter, on our website, um, and about specific elements of the code. And we have provided a number of other resources, but the guidance is broad because it has to cover individuals under a variety of circumstances and can't be specific. Um, if we were to start answering specific questions about dilemmas without knowing the entire picture, the guidance could limit our ability to enforce the code if we were to receive a notice about the situation at some point. So, this is actually a legal concept called detrimental reliance, and this is when a certificate relies to their detriment on the guidance that we provided. So in order to preserve our enforcement mechanism, we don't respond to specific requests for consultation about situations. But there are a number of resources um, and a literature that, as we previously mentioned, has grown exponentially in the area of ethics. Uh, and there are other organizations that offer ethics support to certificates. Thanks, Melissa. That was very helpful. And I think it'll help clear up some of the misunderstandings and reduce some of the periodic criticisms we get about our unwillingness to provide ethics guidance about specific situations. And again, just to reiterate, we will never get the entire picture. Um, you'd like to yeah. think that we would, but that's just not likely to happen. So we, we can't provide that kind of guidance. And we really want to preserve our ability to enforce the code. Right. So here's another misunderstanding. It's one we've heard in the last few years. Um, it's an unusual one, and, and that's that the BACB is copyrighted or owns the term behavior analyst. And there's actually a recent journal editor who required authors to use the term behavior scientist when referring to uh, researchers uh, and use the term behavior analyst when referring to practitioners. I thought this was an odd practice, so I inquired about it, and I was told that 
because we own the term behavior analysts, um, it now had to be used more specifically to only refer to practitioners. And it seems like the glossary definition and our use of the term behavior analyst in our ethics code gave this person that impression. Um, so just to clear this up, when we use the term behavior analyst in the professional and ethical compliance code for behavior analysts and in our forthcoming a new ethics code, it's just an efficiency so that every time we have to refer to behavior analysts, we don't have to write BCBA or BCABA. Um, so to be clear, we have not copyrighted the term behavior analyst. We don't own it. And given its generic nature, it's unlikely that the U.S. Copyright Office would, would grant such a copyright. Uh, now, of course, we have copyrighted our organization name and acronym and the names and acronyms of our credentials. And some of these include the, the term behavior analyst. But that's just a common practice uh, for businesses. So, you know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we have over 20 behavior analysts who either work at the BACB or serve on our board of directors. And we all obviously recognize that not all behavior analysts are certified by the BACB and not all behavior analysts are practitioners. So to recap, the BACB does not own the use of the term behavior analyst. And we acknowledge that it refers to a broad array of professionals who engage in very different kinds of activity. That's really interesting, Jen. I appreciate that explanation because I had thought there might be another reason for that. But I have definitely noted almost a movement from specific groups of people that are now using the term behavior scientist to describe mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah, that's happened a lot over the last few years, and, and we see it in a bunch of different groups. Um, I think the, the use of the term behavior scientist to describe, uh, you know, behavior analysts is only in small part related to the misunderstanding that I just described. I think there are other determinants uh, behind this kind of rebranding. Um, and if any of our listeners are interested in learning more about this, I co-authored an article on the topic in the European Journal of Behavior Analysis last year. So uh, the final misunderstanding we'll address today concerns how our VCS pass rate data are interpreted. So just first, a little background on the VCS system. About two decades ago, the BACB created the approved course sequence system to recognize universities that taught all of the coursework required for either the BCBA or BCABA uh, credential. Um, and a couple of years ago, we transferred this program over to ABAI, the proper home for kind of an educational designation system. And by that time, uh, we had relabeled the system verified course sequence. But we still publish the pass rates uh, from those programs each year because we have the examination data. And so uh, every spring, we publish a new report uh, for both BCBA and, and BCABA certifications that show the percentage of first-time test takers from uh, each one of the verified course sequences and the percentage of them that actually pass the exam, again, on their first try. Uh, so the misunderstanding here uh, concerns how these data are interpreted. And we've routinely seen instances where people look at the overall percentage in the year of first-time test takers who pass, let's say, the BCBA exam, for example. So in 2019, that was 63%. And so people view that overall percentage as kind of a benchmark, and then they evaluate a training program with respect to how its pass rate uh, compares to the overall. Uh, and that is a huge mistake because the overall 
metric is obviously a function of all of the individual university pass rates. So last year, the pass rate was 63% for first-time BCBA test takers. Uh, you should not look at a program that, for example, also has 63% passing and say, oh, they're at the national average, or they've met the benchmark, or they're mm -hmm. kind of about, you know, at the top of the bell curve or whatever. That is absolutely the wrong way to uh, assess these data because, again, the overall is a function of the parts. So the way I would look at the data is disregard what the overall percentage is, look at a specific training program, see its pass rate, and think about it in terms of a probability. So if you've got a large program and 60% uh, of its first-time graduates pass, that means that 40% of the brand new graduates from this program fail the exam on their first attempt. Now, as we've mentioned before, passing our examinations are by no means the most important outcome of university training, but they are a very important outcome of university training. Um, and so again, uh, we would encourage people who are looking at our pass rate data to not compare each university's pass rate to the overall for the year, but just to look at it on its own and think about the probability of passing as a result of being trained in that program. I think that will be helpful because I've seen that interpretation before. That's great. Okay, so that's our episode today. Uh, we hope you found our elaborations informative. Again, you know, misunderstandings about and criticisms of the BACB are totally understandable, again, because of the adolescence of our profession. So in the future, as we encounter more opportunities to provide clarification and education about the BACB, we'll come back and try to address those on the podcast. In the meantime, we have a few resources that we mentioned today located in our episode show notes. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.